Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, can you start a fire without a spark? I know this is supposed to be a reference to a Bruce Printing song, but I don't know his music that well, so I don't get it. I'm just going to say no. You don't know Dancing in the Dark? I do, but I don't know the you lyrics. can't start a fire. Okay. There's going to be plenty more of this. Did you write that? I've told you before, your lyrics are rubbish. I didn't even rhyme. Anyway, I asked because this episode we're going to be talking about Blinded by the Light, Gurinda Chadha's film about a British-Pakistani teen who finds escape from the racist conformity of 1980s Luton through the music of Bruce Springsteen. We'll strap our hands across Bruce's engine soon enough, but first, what have you been watching, Anna? A very uh, little-known American Jello film from the 70s called The Eyes of Laura Mars. These are police photographs. They are strictly our own material. They were never published anywhere at all. So my question is very simple. Why am I photographed so much like yours? That's right. It's not fundamentally an amazing film, but I find it really interesting because it's about a, a glamorous fashion photographer paid by Faye Dunaway in a role that was supposedly originally a vehicle for Barbara Streisand. And sometimes it just freaks me out to think about Barbara in that particular role. She didn't want to take it because it was too kinky. Ooh. And essentially, Laura Mars, which is the name of the lead character, can see murders through kind of in visions. This is incredible. In the midst of all of this, I I can't stop thinking of you. I know, I know. What what is going on? I don't know. I mean, it's completely unprofessional of me to be walking with you in the woods, I'll tell you that. I don't have time for this. I'm supposed to be catching a killer. So it's all about voyeurism and the gaze and her being a visual artist, a photographer, and then also having these weird supernatural visions of grisly murders as well happening. And it was made in the 70s. It was one of the one of John Carpenter's original uh, scripts, one of his first film scripts, not directed by him. But it tried to take the Italian giallo style and apply it to American narratives. So it's quite a unique exercise and I'd encourage people to check it out. It's available on Blu-ray in the UK. It was re-released a few years ago. I've been watching Quentin Tarantino dancing around like a lunatic, not for the first time, but back in the 1990s when he hosted Saturday Night Live. Here I am hosting Saturday Night And I didn't know this happened, did you? No, I didn't. So Quentin Tarantino, just off the back of Pulp Fiction, his kind of stock was so high that he could mm. basically do anything. And this is off a piece I read on Polygon.com. And they wrote about this 
astonishing opening monologue he does where he is like Quentin Tarantino 2000%. He's twitching, he's dancing. In fact, I'm actually a little embarrassed because it's so obvious what the single greatest moment in television history is. See, there was this one episode of Bewitched. <laughs> Start Serena, always a good sign. In fact, you know, whenever Serena was on, you knew it was going to be a good episode, you know. You know Serena or Uncle Arthur. You know. Now, on this show, Serena wanted to break into rock and roll. He's got the weird accent going on. And then there's a bit where he just bursts into song from Bewitched. It's completely bizarre. It's very strange. And then later, there's a sketch where he has directors, i.e. the Saturday Night Live actors, playing... Yeah, it's a skit. It's a skit where Spike Lee, Oliver Stone and Gus Van Sant, or people playing them, are sat there kind of talking about how the director's uh, raison d'etre is to have sex with their lead actress, which in today's parlance, doesn't seem that cool and is quite weird at the time anyway. But it really struck me how these things are hidden away until they're not and the internet reveals them. You're a horny bastard. I know it, you know, and so does everybody else. What the hell are you talking about, man? You don't know me. Everybody here who didn't shoot an extreme close-up of their lips sucking on Rosie Perez's breast, raise your hand, all right? I think I rest my case. We're moving on. All right, uh, Oliver. And they're also completely throwaway, but at the same time, non-disposable, because the post-Weinstein, post-Me Too conversation is always going to be flavoured by this stuff that we keep digging up. So I was watching just thinking, I see how the writers got to that sketch, and I see why at the time it might have been funny. And now, today, it just feels icky, but also of its time, but also icky again. So I'm really conflicted by watching it, and it was really fascinating and also weird. It was extremely weird. I watched it this morning yeah. from the links that you sent Perfect through. Perfect for your breakfast. I, it kind of was. <laughs> kind of was. It's like a meta performance in many ways. And it just, I genuinely don't know if it's him being himself or it's himself kind of completely um, consumed by what was a massive success very, very early on in his career. And I imagine at that point in time, he was just at the top of the world and everybody was hanging on every single thing that he said and everything he did or suggested was considered just absolutely sheer brilliance and I think with SNL the hosts contribute to the writing of the sketches yeah. and to the development of that particular episode so it feels Tarantino all over yeah it, I like the idea that it might be performance art because that gives him a bit more creative leeway I guess yeah, let's but go it, with that yeah it's yeah. perfectly nutty at the same time Okay, Aviators on for Blinded by the Light. Loosely based on journalist Safraz Manzor's book, Greetings from Burry Park, Race, Religion and Rock and Roll, the film follows Javid, a 17-year-old struggling to meet the expectations of his overbearing Pakistani father while fostering a secret desire to write. Meanwhile, job cuts are biting and the BNP are on the prowl. Javid is stuck down a dead end until a friend turns him on to the music of Bruce Springsteen. Paternalism, Thatcherism, white nationalism, turns out there's nothing that can't be beat by the boss. The Cold War rages on. Reagan and Thatcher are still number one. But I'm stuck in Luton. No fun, freedom or future. Javid writes all the time. He's never had a girlfriend before. So against your religion? Anna, did you ever have a Javid moment? I.e., did you find any music that completely changed your world? And when and why? Talking about music, then I'd probably going to go with um, Joy Division when I was a teenager. Yeah. I can't remember when or how 
it just suddenly appeared and then it could never go away and it changed my life forever. What I loved about this film is that it really captures that feeling of finding a musician that you feel like is literally singing to you on your wavelength and the way that it's almost a kind of genetic change when you hear it, that the music just digs into the core of you and your whole world is coloured by the experience of hearing them. Bruce, the direct line to all this true in this shitty world. Seriously, thank me later. I didn't know music could be like that. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt, everything I've ever wanted. That's what you call real music. Springsteen. He's more what your dad listens to. Not my dad. It's like finding a kind of a long lost friend, I guess, or like somebody who was always there, but you never could speak the language. And suddenly the language of this music just pops into your head and changes everything around. Somebody or something that you kind of always knew, but exactly. you just didn't know they yeah. existed until yeah. that moment. And it, I guess it must be a fundamental part of you because it plugs into something that is already there in yourself. But this film, particularly in the kind of the first few scenes where Javid starts to hear Bruce Springsteen and he really hears him, he doesn't listen. It visualizes that so well and in the perfectly cheesy way as well. Like there's kind of lyrics strapped across the screen, which in any other film would look awful. But here it's just done so wholeheartedly and so full of joy that you believe every scene. And the, the lead performer actually really just sells that completely as well, that he is having his world turned upside down by listening to music. And I just loved that. It took me straight back to being 17 and discovering, I don't know, a band like At The Drive-In and being like, this is my world now. And they were always my world, but I never knew it at the time. I mean, this is fundamentally a film about fandom and how fandom, you don't become a fan because you aspire to be that or because you do it by design. It sort of discovers you exactly like you just explained. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it is your identity. It's the things that you love and reflection of you directly, whether they're technically designed for you or not. Because one of the biggest kind of parts of this film is about people telling Javid and his friend as well that Bruce Springsteen is not for them because mm -hmm. it's too old, because they're supposed to be into Duran Duran. Do you think that this man sings for people like us? But he talks to me. Because it's not Pakistani music, because they're British, they're not American. Nothing about the music of Springsteen is sort of made for them, but it speaks to them and it found them and it consumes them and kind of makes them see and understand life and their own experiences in a completely transformative way. That's what I loved about it. And it made me think about how not just how intense fandom is, if you've ever experienced that, be it with music or film or art or, you know, whatever it is that makes you just rewrite your own existence and your relationship to life, but also how has that been translated into film and I started thinking about films about fandom about fans and there's a lot of documentaries like Trekkies and King of Kong and you know even the people versus George Lucas that delve into fan phenomenons mm -hmm. around specific properties but I'm interested in the films that are fictional that create endearing characters but that are also trying to visualize this wild personal intense connection that is almost wordless like when somebody gets really into something how do you even visualize that which is why this film is quite extraordinary because like you said it shows the lyrics which is what speaks to Javid as an aspiring writer so loudly it just sort of blasts them all over Luton all over the house where his parents live when he's kind of running around on the streets he just sees the words everywhere but that's a, a visually interesting way of visualizing kind of that connection. But it doesn't really work in other films. Like mm. the films that I could think of were 
almost famous or Galaxy Quest or yeah. <laughs> High Fidelity. And they are about kind of that obsessive fandom, but they don't really show it visually. It's all internal yeah. and through soundtracks. Yeah. And it, it's left to the filmmakers to be the kind of conveyor belt for the fandom, if you see what I mean, where the character almost has to state, I love this stuff over and over again, whereas with Javid in this film, you feel it. And yes. the, the High Fidelity link is really interesting because Bruce Springsteen makes a cameo in High yes, Fidelity. Does. John Cusack plays a kind of nerdy record shop owner who's going through heartbreak. You give that big final good luck and goodbye to your all-time top five and just move on down the road. What this film did that High Fidelity didn't and lots of films and lots of culture hasn't done is it made me understand a bit more the mentality of the Bruce Springsteen fan, i.e. like the kind of stereotyped, usually white, usually in their late 40s, Bruce Springsteen head who really, really loves going to watch all of his gigs. I've always kind of felt, and there's a good piece on Salon talking about why millennials hate people who like Bruce Springsteen. I've always felt that Bruce was kind of cornball and cheesy and dad rock and not particularly for me. But what Are you talking specifically about Springsteen fans or about kind of fans in general? I think Springsteen fans because they're a, the stereotype of them is a very particular set. They're like they're kind of usually in this country at least middle class dads who love to spin a song by a poet about hard working blue collar men who are trying to escape from a small town you know there is no bigger cliche than the slightly disappointed middle class dad listening to that music to try and escape his own life but what this film does is explain where those people come from and regardless of race in this context it's just saying that we all for the most part, have grown up and been teenagers in worlds that feel restrictive and compressed. And music like Bruce Springsteen's help us to escape that. And there's nothing wrong with carrying that music through your life and finding it inspirational. So it made me more understanding about dads, as if dads needed more understanding. I mean, it's been 15 minutes and you haven't mentioned the fact that you're a dad. So I think this is breaking some sort of record. However, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Um, you touched on it very lightly. And in one of the reviews of Blinded by the Line in IndieWire, the review by David Ehrlich, he called Springsteen the uncool poet. Yeah. And you vaguely touched on that just now. Do you think this is a film about uncoolness as well? I think it is. And I think the film is fundamentally uncool, but it is so confident in its uncoolness. And that's why it works, because it does that thing that we talked about in the first series of this podcast when we talked about music biopics. It so perfectly captures the essence of the artist and then shows us that through the film. So I would describe Springsteen as pretty uncool, quite corny, but completely heartfelt and serious in his pursuit of trying to write stories about small town America, right? This film does exactly the same thing. It's completely uncool. It is horribly corny at times, but it does it with such openness and such full spirit that you believe every moment of it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. 
With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. listening to our music before you start getting confused and hating yourself so it is like listening to a bruce springsteen song and i can't believe that that's by accident i think the filmmakers are very savvy about how they've made a musical film for, full of bruce springsteen songs that reflects the artists that they're talking about i mean there is always a certain corniness and fandom because of, of how earnest fans yeah. are you know that like overpowering love for someone else's work and javid in blinded by the light just completely embodies it he starts dressing like bruce he starts talking kind of in this <laughs> new jersey reference um kind of wall of references that has nothing to do with his direct experience he wears double denim he does wear double he rocks it, well it actually well. yeah, yeah. He really does. But the point that I was going to make is actually even William in Almost Famous and Javid in here, do you think they're sort of representative of a very 21st century, maybe a very millennial version of coolness where, you know, he's very smart, he's very earnest, he's really passionate about what he wants to do, he's creative, he's loyal to his friends, he's super in love with his girlfriend, he wants to have a good relationship with his family, he's like struggling against the barriers, be that kind of, you know, racism or um, his like family dynamic. Come on, everyone! My family is stuck in another century. You do not know this country like I do. They will never accept you, beta. That's good to not fit in. This is our table now. Or money troubles, whatever it is. But he is fundamentally a cool person because he's very genuine and confident in who he is and his own identity and in finding his own identity on his own terms as opposed to on somebody else's terms. In the same way as William in Almost Famous is a 15-year-old who's writing for Rolling Stone and traveling around with a rock band. Like that is the coolest (laughs) shit you can ever imagine. So do you think that there is an element of... um, It's uncool based on extremely mainstream notions of it and also kind of considering the context. So in Blinded by the Light, we're told to assume that the Duran Duran kind of heavy hairsprayed style is the basis of coolness. But we're also seeing that that's not the thing. Yeah. Like we're not really empathizing with these guys, not really empathizing with that style. They're not earnest. They're just doing it because it's the cool thing to do at that particular point in time. Yeah. It, I mean, it's throwaway, like all pop music, right? Mm. And, and the implication is that Bruce Springsteen is not throwaway because Javid and his friend who are really into Springsteen are into him at a time when Springsteen has been around for 15 years. So in, in pop generations, he's a great, great, great granddad at that point and Culture Club Duran Duran are the sound of now. Hmm. And so they are not just non-white people in Luton, they are non-white people who have picked up on a very white, very boring (laughs) by pop culture's examination of it artist who they're not quote-unquote supposed to like. Hmm. I think the chief thing about this film that does kind of, and I sound so old, will speak to millennials is it is completely free of the cynicism that my generation has pretty much made a monopoly of. If you think about how people were writing about music when I was growing up in things like Melody Maker or Enemy or Select, it was very much arch and it was quite bitter and sour on occasion. And it was like, we love this thing, but we're going to love this thing for a few weeks until something else comes along to replace it and then we're going to kill it. And it's absolutely dead to us. 
that tone, I think, has just faded out and it's died out. And I, I get a sense from the generation below me that genuine love is shared for lots of things all at the same time. And there's far less judgment about how you position yourself in those boxes. A millennial teen could love Culture Club and Bruce Springsteen at the same time. And because the time frame has just been shattered by the internet, there's a sense that culture is much more of a pick and mix bag of everything that you like all at the same time. And I, I feel like fandom is still there, but the intensity of fandom is spread between all of these different things. And you just have this kind of gumbo of stuff that you love. Oh, totally agree with you. Totally agree with the fact that the internet has essentially or is in the process of eradicating any sort of canon in either music or film or culture in yeah. general. Basically, it means we are all complex human beings and you can like Duran Duran, you can like the Spice Girls and Bruce Springsteen and Ramstein all at the same time if you wanted to. And you can find them and connect with them and also engage with those different fandoms. You don't need to be ultimately defined by one single thing. And if you like Springsteen, you're not allowed to like Culture Club. Yeah. But I guess what that kind of pick and mix does is it removes the context of what you like, right? So it slightly deadens the political aspect of a lot of Bruce Springsteen's songwriting. But what this film does is brings that back because of the situation that Javid lives in, right? Mm -hmm. He's living in 1980s Luton. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of racism going on. Mm -hmm. Thatcherism is in full flight. So there's mm -hmm. not many jobs, the yep. economic deprivation, social problems, um, to the point where these bunch of white kids keep pissing through one of his neighbor's letterboxes because they're a Pakistani family. Mm -hmm. So the film as well as being corny, really ideally walks that line between Cornball and Sirius and brings in those elements of drama that f make the music feel much more weighty because Javid actually really has genuine threat to escape from. Mm -hmm. And it's not just music that's going to get him out of that. It's, it's this push that he has to use his writing to find a genuine way out of this very conformed and racist society that he's living in. And, you know, I wasn't in Luton at that time. I don't know what that feels like, but this film really ideally presented to me that feeling that you can love music in this fantasy world as a pure escape from genuine misery, which is what he's going through. Well, I think that's a bit overdramatic. Maybe. Um, I don't think it's genuine misery. I think what really connected me with this film, because as I said before, I'm not really that across Springsteen as a musician. Nothing against him, just never got into it. However, there's a thing that I think it portrays really, really smartly and really beautifully. It's that Javid is stuck in between two worlds. So there is that 1980s deprived, problematic and quite openly racist Britain. But there's also his quite oppressive in their own right Pakistani family who've got a very particular worldview and are very closed off in different ways. So one of the constant and conflicts that Javid faces is with his dad and they love each other dearly but his father also very openly states in the film that you will never be British and you're not one of them so you just have to kind of live your life as well as you can but you can never be a part of their world. Bruce sings about not letting the hardness of the world stop you from letting the best of you slip away. My hope is to build a bridge to my ambitions but not a wall between my family and me. Who here wants to be a writer? The writers I admire make a difference. Listen, if you want to succeed, do what the Jews do. Sounds a bit racist, Dad. Stay away from the girls. Follow the Jews. He lives in between his family's world and the British world, mm. Luton. So in school, 
he's just another kid, but at home, you know, he's got all of this kind of cultural weight on his shoulders and he needs to live in between them because he's being confronted by both existences. So it's kind of a really beautiful representation of what third culture kids are and also second generation immigrants where I'm a second generation immigrant. So I grew up in a place and my culture is very different from my parents' culture. And there is that divide that exists when you grow up. And especially if you become a fan or if you're more culturally engaged with something that is also quite different. So Javid engages with, you know, a New Jersey musician when he's growing up in Luton and his parents and his kind of original culture is Pakistani. That is a whole mix of identities and pressures and cultural packages that one person needs to sort out and at the same time try to find himself and pick sort of the elements of each bit that make up his whole personality. I want to be a writer. Writing isn't a job. I need you to do more. I can't wait to get away from here. Shazia, you look like a Pakistani Madonna. When I'm dancing, I block out the world. I know what you mean. If you don't fix this now, we will lose our son for good. So he's kind of constantly in conflict with his family because he wants to be a writer, he wants to be a journalist, and he's good at it and he gets support from his school for it, from his teacher, and he strives for it and kind of makes baby steps in the right direction and kind of gets his first byline in the local paper and stuff like that. And that is completely rejected by his father because that kind of goes against some of his own principles. He cannot see beyond himself in order to see how his son is just never going to be able to live the life that he did. Mm. But he wants that for him in a way. He also wants a better life for his son, but also wants him to live by the rules that were applied to him at his particular time. And that source of conflict and the resolution that they come to is just so beautiful and so nuanced. And I think it could only have come from a filmmaker like Arinda Chada. Yeah. And she did that with Bend It Like Beckham to an she extent did. as well, right? Do you think that, is it a filmic cliche that music or football or whatever you love that isn't politics or your family situation do you think that can transcend generations like or is that just a kind of the film version of what we're told because in this film towards the end Javid's dad starts listening to Springsteen himself and therefore understands his son better through the music which is beautiful and sort of unrealistic I mean this film is not realism but it it, I just wondered in real life if that actually happens or do you feel like they're never going to align I don't think he fully understands Springsteen in the same way that Javid understands him. I think the fact that he opens the door to listen, but maybe not hear, what his son is so obsessed and in love with is the steps forward that they had to take in their relationship. But going back to your question, I don't think it's the thing that matters. You know, football in the case of the protagonist of Bandit Like Beckham or Bruce Springsteen music in Blinded by the Light, the thing that becomes kind of the, the source of conflict and also progress for these characters is the fact that they connect and identify with something that was technically not designed for them, yeah. something that is not meant for them, but that makes them feel like they belong because they exist in a world where they're being told that they're not wanted or they're not right or they're not kind of behaving or existing in the correct way based on rules that actually don't technically apply to them either, mm-hmm. if that makes any it sense. It does, yeah. I'm now just picturing you and your dad doing the Ian Curtis jerky dance together. Oh, that never happened. <laughs> I did try to play him David Bowie and he was like, can you translate the lyrics? I was like, oh, I really can't. <laughs> um, do you think in a way this works as a sort of indirect biopic of Springsteen? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, Springsteen gave it his blessing because he read the script and immediately said, of course, you can use yeah. my songs. Um, so, yeah, he is involved. It's not a biopic of Springsteen, but I wonder if we need a biopic of Springsteen. That's what I'm wondering. Because I would love a biopic of Springsteen in the Rocket Man style. Would you really, though? Yes, because, I would. But I feel like Springsteen. Like a working class New Jersey fantasy <laughs> musical? But he's already done that. Like, he does that throughout his songs, right? Like, if, we, if we're talking about culture aside from medium, like removing the fact it's a film, music, game, whatever. Springsteen writes that story over and over again. And that's what people relate to. He writes about his early life as a working class person trying to escape a dead end town, right? That's what mm -hmm. people relate to in his music. Weirdly, watching the ascent of that person from working class blue collar worker to multi-millionaire songwriter, I don't, I think that kind of strips the magic away from the songwriting, right? Because one of the main criticisms people who don't like Bruce Springsteen have is how can you ca carry on churning out these songs about mm -hmm. escape and dead end town and having no hope when you're a multimillionaire who can fly off in a private jet at the drop of a hat. It's it weirdly kind of takes away the very thing that makes him true and honest. If isn't you kind of great, visualize that. Isn't that a great basis for a fantasy musical? Maybe, but it's a bit of a sad one. I don't want to see the multimillionaire at his piano. I want to see and know the fantasy of the blue collar worker riding out on his motorbike. Call Dexter Fletcher and make it happen. Oh, okay. That's it for this episode. Blinded by the Light is on general release in UK cinemas from August 9th. We're peeling off our sweat slick double denim and heading back down our own lonely road to Twitter. You can find me at Henry H. Barnes and Anna. I'm on Anna Be Demented. The Bigger Picture is a BFI podcast produced by the man we call the boss, Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. Your last line this episode is from Bruce Springsteen and describes how I often feel about making a podcast with Anna. It's a sad man, my friend, who's living in his own skin and can't stand the company. How very dare you. It's perfect for us. So rude. Perfect. Absolutely rude. <laughs>